Welcome to week number one in our series that we're calling Playlist. And, uh, you know, when you think about music, uh, music's kind of like the soundtrack to our lives. You ever, you know, be driving down the road and you hear this song and all of a sudden it takes you back like 10 years, 20 years, 70 years for some of us. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, music, I love music. I love all different kinds of music. In this series, we're not really looking at Christian music as such, but music you may be familiar with and really recognize, and there's some real spiritual truths in some of these songs that we may be familiar with, uh, maybe introducing you to a few new songs as well uh, in this series. I think we were, we we're planning on this for being six weeks, actually. Uh, and when we were talking as a staff about this, uh, I, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to need to lead out uh, on, on the song that changed everything for me. In fact, you don't, you don't realize this, but this song as a catalyst. It's impacted your life, even if you've never heard this song before. Because this song, uh, God really spoke to me through this song, and it caused us to change our philosophy of ministry here at Valley Christian Church change uh, everything about our church. Uh, in fact, I would say if it weren't for this song, most of you would never have come a second time because of the way the church was. And, and so uh, I want to lead off this series called Playlist with this song, and, and we're going to play it, uh, and then I'll unpack it and just tell you the story behind the song that you're actually experiencing, like I said, uh, you know, really the, the fruit of what uh, hit my heart when I heard this song uh, a number of years ago. So uh, as we start off, uh, I give you one by U2. Uh, Bono, who's the lead singer of U2, started in the 90s, later on, uh, what's called the One Campaign, the campaign to wipe out the AIDS epidemic, and single-handedly, Bono raised more money than some nations to wipe out AIDS in Africa and successfully, because of the one campaign, for the most part, is completely under control to this day. Just absolutely amazing, this whole idea of one like this. But it wasn't in 1991, it was really 2001. I was driving home from work and uh, had the radio on and, and heard this song. And I remember we pulled into the neighborhood right in front of one of my neighbor's house, Trevor's house, and uh, the words to the song, I've, I've heard the song before many times. In fact, I, I probably had it on a CD already at that point because U2 is one of my favorite groups. But these words just, it sounded like they were speaking to me through this, uh, the car radio. You say love is a temple, love a higher law. Love is a temple, love a higher law. You ask me to enter, but then you make me crawl. And I can't keep holding on to what you've got because all you've got is hurt. I remember pulling into the driveway and just asking God a question out loud. Is that us? Do we do that as a church, God? We ask people to enter and then we make them crawl. You gotta dress this way. You gotta talk this way. You gotta act this way. We say it's all about love and then we make people jump through all kinds of religious hoops that are nowhere in scripture. 
that there's a Christian culture that has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ or the Bible. You say love is a temple, love the higher law. Love is a temple, love the higher law. You ask me to enter and then you make me crawl. And I can't keep holding on to what you've got because all you've got is hurt. And as I sat there in the car in the driveway, all of a sudden these verses in the scripture started boom, 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 coming to my mind. It's an interesting song, just a little bit before we get to those verses I want to share with you. But this was the catalyst for sweeping changes that we made in our church between 2001 and 2002. The words of this song. That's what got my attention. This song, one, by you 2 it's not a blissful, peachy love song. It's actually a song about a breakup between a man and a woman. But it's probably the most uh, beautiful and heart-rendering, inspiring song of a, about a breakup that's ever been written. The lyrics develop like a conversation between a man and a woman, though we only hear one side of the story, the one side of the conversation. It feels like a plea or perhaps uh, uh, some sort of just melancholy surrender. A man is realizing his relationship is lost. It's done. It's over. And he's speaking the final words on the subject with conflicting emotions, conflicting feelings. Sadness, yet persistent love for this woman. Anger and desperation at the same time and a longing for the ideal of being one flesh as husband and wife again but realizing that the other person doesn't want anything to do with it. The chorus, one love, is spoken with sadness and also with irony. He's like, we're supposed to be one, but we're not one. That's the ideal, that's the way it should be, but that's not what we're experiencing. What are we gonna do now? What's the next step? How am I gonna move forward past this moment? See, this is one of the reasons why I don't, I know this is gonna sound great, I don't listen to a lot of Christian music. Christian pop music. I'm not talking about worship music, I'm talking about Christian radio because it's so thin and shallow. Because the reality is even the scripture, Psalms is one of the books of the Bible that's all kinds of songs. There are no quick, easy, fix answers to questions in the book of Psalms. But much of Christian music is just quick pop answers. Do this, and here come the rainbows and the unicorns. There's only one problem with that, life. And I believe that if it's Christian, it should be better, not worse. One of the very interesting things about this song is uh, it begins in the minor key, a little music theory for you. I just know a little bit about music theory. It begins in a minor key, which generally, even if you don't know anything about music theory, uh, generally, uh, we as human beings, particularly in the United States, perceive those, those minor keys as sad chords. So it starts as a sad song. It hits us emotionally sad, but the verse, it changes to major tones, which are actually tones of celebration. And so right in the song itself, you have sadness and celebration in one song. And that's much more like life and everything's going to be great, no problem at all. And so there I sat in the garage in 2001, asking God, 
is this what we do as a church? We ask people to enter and then we make them crawl. And I couldn't help but think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 23. And if you have your Valley app, you, you probably want to follow along with, with where we're going in the message. And you can read it right there and follow, fill in the blanks. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 13, he's speaking to the Pharisees. And listen to what he says to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. Woe to you. And that woe doesn't mean like, whoa, you're awesome. It means like warning you're to be pitied because God is going to judge you. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who, those who, uh, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He, he says, you're supposed to be helping people to connect to God, but instead you're shutting out the kingdom of God. You're slamming the door in people's faces. And then he goes on and he says this in verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Wow. Reading the Bible will mess you up as a Christian. This is red letter stuff that Jesus is saying to people's faces. He's saying, you're trying so hard to make a convert, and then you put all kind of bondage on top of them. And that's exactly what they, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law 2,000 years ago were doing. They had all these layers of culture that had nothing to do with the Old Testament scriptures. All these rules, all these regulations on top. You ask me to enter, and then you make me crawl. And I can't keep holding on to what you've got. Because all you've got is hurt. And I just get emotional when I even read those words from that song. Because as I said, it just started like a bomb going off in my personal life. And then with the leadership of the church, just leading them in what I felt like God was calling us to do. Back in 2000, if you'd walked into Valley Christian Church, I know some of you actually were here back then. What you would have seen were beautiful pink padded pews and mauve carpeting. And brass chandeliers like wagon wheel chandeliers. And you would have seen a beautiful plastic flower arrangement. And you would have seen this young 20-something pastor with a suit and tie and shiny shoes on because I shine them every Saturday night for church. And we would tell you, come as you are. And as soon as you walked in the door, you'd feel terribly self-conscious. I'm not like the rest of these weirdos. Because we were very much, it was, the night, it was 1990s and 2000, and we were very much acting in a 1960s way. Only a few decades behind culture. I remember one of my best friends in high school, I invited him to come to church one time uh, after I was the pastor, and he said, I can't, I don't have any church clothes. I was like, it's okay, come anyway. I knew it wasn't going to be okay when he showed up in jeans and a polo shirt, and everybody was looking down at him. Like, whoa, who's this? Because he didn't have a suit and tie. Forget about sport coat and khakis. You really, you needed to get saved if you had a sport coat and khakis, man. And I just was like, where is this in the Bible? Because according to the Bible, we're not even sure Jesus had to change of clothes. 
And, and, and we have this culture that's grown up that has nothing to do with the Bible. And we evaluate and we judge people based on them. And so the leaders, I shared this with them, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I think we need to start changing this. And I began to do some reading. It was pretty interesting. Very much the whole approach uh, in the Western world, particularly in the United States for, for centuries, has been really an approach that's, uh, in terms of sharing the gospel and, and sharing, uh, evangelizing, if you will, using that word, uh, in a Roman way, it's it's the, the based on really the the Roman approach, and the way that this looks like is this, and you'll probably find it pretty interesting. The Roman model of evangelism is that you present a Christian message uh, and and propositions, and then you invite a person to decide if they believe in Christ and to become a Christian, and then the next step is if, and it's a big if, if they affirm faith in Jesus Christ, then you welcome them into the community of Christ. Only if they affirm a proposition. And I was doing some study about this, and, and I stumbled across a very interesting historical book, and I highly recommend it, How the Irish Saved Civilization. If you haven't read it before, it's fascinating stuff. And I didn't even know I was Irish at the time. Now I've found by DNA tests that, that uh, I'm over half Irish, which is just fantastic. Uh, you know, no doubt about that. But uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill. And he talked in there about a great historical, uh, like I said, it's a book about history, but he talked about St. Patrick. Patrick, not many people know this. First of all, St. Patrick was not Irish. Did you know that? He was British. He was a slave. He, he was kept by, as a slave, uh, as a boy for 14 years, tending sheep, and he escaped, and he went back to England. But while he was a slave, one time he was tending flocks. That was all he could do is like uh, forced labor, and all he could do was pray while he was out there. And God gave him a vision for the people of Ireland. And so when he escaped, he went ahead, got all the theological training, and he went back to the very people that had enslaved him to win them for Jesus Christ. But he didn't take this Roman approach. He knew it wouldn't happen. Instead, he turned the whole entire approach upside down. And this is what saved Ireland. And Ireland, in turn, historians say, saved Western civilization because of all the great uh, monasteries and the writing and duplicating of scripture and all those things at the time. But the, 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 the Irish, or if you want to say the Celts, the Celtic form of evangelism was this, establish community with people first before you ever ask them to believe anything. Establish relationship with them. Invite them into fellowship in your community of faith. Within the fellowship, engage in a conversation and ministry and prayer and worship with them. And then in time, they'll discover what you believe, and then you invite them to commit. If I could summarize it this way, and this is what our whole entire church pivoted on in 2001 and took a different direction. And this is the, the big idea, belonging before believing. Belonging before believing. Most of the American church says, in order for you to be welcome into our church, you have to believe first. You have to agree with what we agree, and then we'll welcome you in. And that's why the American church is losing today. That's why the American church is in severe decline. And really, another excellent book I could recommend as well, uh, that's called The Celtic Way of Evangelism by George C. Hunter III, that it spells out this whole entire approach, and this is what I began to lead the church into. Because instead of saying, love, you know, love's the higher law, you ask me to enter, and then you make me crawl. You make me do all these things. Instead, belonging before 
believing. Welcome people in. And, and if that means that maybe we need to dress down a little more casually so people feel welcome, then we want to do that. And so we began to do that, and literally in one week's time, uh, we said to everyone, wave goodbye. Everything's going to be different when you come back next week. And when they came back, it looked a lot like it does right now. Pews were gone, chandeliers cut down, all, all those plastic flowers thrown away, all, all that stuff. And we just, we just want to emphasize people being comfortable, not that it looks like, you know, a funeral home or something like that. And so this idea of belonging before believing it's pretty interesting. I, I, I did drill down a little bit deeper on this. You ever wondered about this? Some of you know the story in Matthew chapter 16 where, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? You ever heard that before when he asked that question? Now, now watch this. Jesus had official, if you want to look at it this way, three and a half years of ministry at age 30, and he was crucified at age 33 and a half, most scholars believe. And so at some point, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? Do you know when that is in a chronological timetable that the scholars have been able to recreate? It was after he'd been with the disciples for two and a half years. Two and a half years before he popped the question. What did Jesus do? That's where St. Patrick got it from. He invited them into relationship. He invited them into community and he lived his life out in front of them and they saw a miracle, they saw all these things, but it wasn't until over two years later that his ministry two-thirds behind him that he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter was the only one that got it right. The other guys didn't even get it. And so many times the, the, the Roman way is, here's a proposition, accept it and we'll accept you. Believe it, and then we'll welcome you in. Instead of belonging before belief. This is what Jesus did. He just said to the disciples, follow me. Follow me. I'll, I'll make you fishers men, but follow me. He didn't say, do you accept that I'm your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I'm going to lay down my life for you, and I'm going to sacrifice everything for you, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, you can follow me. If you don't believe that, sorry, I'll find someone else. That's not what he did at all. But that's what we do so often in the American church. This is powerful, belonging before believing. It's not a new idea at all. In fact, in Psalm, 38, Psalm 34, verse eight, it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Do you realize in the Old Testament it's saying what? Sample God. Sample him. I, I love it. You know, when we go uh, shopping sometimes at the Galleria and the food court, there's always, you know, those folks standing outside. They have the samples on the little, you know, uh, on the little toothpicks there. And they're like, hey, want to try some bourbon chicken, you know, or something like that? And I just walk by seven, eight, 10, 14 times and I pretty much have dinner, you, you know. Like, uh, but, but, you know, what happens is you just sample it and then all of a sudden, what do you do? You just find yourself, I'd like some bourbon chicken. I, I, I need some bourbon chicken. In fact, make it three. Uh, it's just because you taste it. This is Old Testament. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Kick the time. Take the car for a test drive before you buy it. I mean, we're like these crazy, you know, like some crazy young guy in the church. You know, take a girl out on a date for the first time and you say, will you marry me? What? We're asking people to make a lifelong commitment to Jesus Christ. And it's the first time they've ever darkened the door in a church in 15 years. Belonging 
before believing. I think that's a big part. And this, this song just kind of set that on fire in my heart. And we, we've seen over and over God just do incredible things ever since then as we began to change our ministry philosophy here at Valley Christian Church. To the point, just since January, 173 people have put their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time here in Valley Christian Church. 173. It works. It works. And if you're here today and you've never done that, I'll give you an opportunity to. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes people, they, they fill out that little card, they pray and receive Christ as their Savior, and they've been attending for six months, nine months, year and a half. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Kick the tires. Take it for a test drive. There's something else about this song that, that really speaks to me kind of behind the, the surface. And that is a whole idea of embracing paradox. Embracing the paradox of life. Not only the paradox of life, but the paradox of scripture. The Bible is full of all kinds of paradoxes. Things that just don't, don't seem, it doesn't seem like it should be this way, but it is this way. That the definition of a paradox, if, if you're not quite clear on it, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded on truth. And so it seems absurd, but in actuality, it's the truth. And so in the song one by U2, he talks about pain, but he talks about healing at the same time. He talks about betrayal, but, but there's also this feeling like, you know, it's over, but, but you know what? I trust at the same time. Those are paradoxical. And all throughout Scripture, there's, there's, I, I can't even number how many paradoxes that there are in Scripture. And this is why I say, this is one of the things I don't like about Christian music. They never talk about the paradox. It's thin. It's shallow. But if we'll embrace the paradox, it's, it's, it's at the, the very... Uh, center of our Christian faith. In our time together, real quick, let me give you seven of the paradoxes. These are some of the main paradoxes uh, in the New Testament. Here's the first one. Honor through humility. Honor through humility. As a follower of Christ, God says, I will give you honor if you humble yourself. If you seek honor, you won't get it. Honor through humility. James chapter four, verse 10 puts it this way. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. That when we humble ourselves, God says, I'll honor you. If you seek honor, I'll humble you. It's a paradox. It's a paradox. It doesn't seem like it doesn't make sense, but God says, this is the way that it is. How about this one? Strength through weakness. From God's point of view, those that are really, really strong are those that are really, really weak. In fact, the apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. He says, that's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults and the hardships and the persecutions and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, that's like the one thing in, in our country, like it's just intolerable, is, is to ever show yourself as weak. You gotta be strong, you gotta be fighter, you gotta mm, all the time. And God says, you won't become who I want you to be 
if you're always trying to be strong. Paul understood it. Strength comes from weakness. It's a paradox. Even the the actual tune of the song, and it's interesting, by the way, you two just dropped another song yesterday, You're the Best Part of Me, and it's paradoxical. It's like their classic thing. And even, even in the music theories, I said, it's paradox how it starts out in minor keys, that song one, and then goes to major keys in the chorus. It's paradoxical. It's genius behind it, quite honestly. Here's another paradox. Receiving what? How? Through giving. That's a paradox. The world says, gather, keep up, you know, store all that you can, save, 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 save. And God says, no, you receive through giving. That's a paradox. It it seems like there's no way that makes sense. But it's true. It's the truth. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, uh, Paul is talking here and he says, and everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, which we talked about in our last series, Fears, hard work is good, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That's a paradox. That we really, it's what we give away that we actually keep. What we keep, we actually lose. That's a paradox. Receiving through giving. That being said, I, I'm humbled at the generosity of the Valley family. Last Saturday, I mentioned on Sunday in our services that a friend of mine who's a pastor in the Houston area, he called me. Sugarland, Texas, about 30 miles outside of Houston. He said, Greg, we're, we're over 100 homes in his neighborhood wiped out. Just, just completely underwater. And he said, I'm just asking for help. If you could do something financially that will help. We're trying to raise $100,000. And, and what's in my heart is that I've already lined up men in our church and, and skilled laborers. We're going to go in and we're going to help these folks strip out their floors and put, strip the sheetrock out and put the sheetrock back up and fix this because the flood insurance only covers the contents. It doesn't cover the walls and the flooring. And it's going to be a long time before anyone is going to get any help to do that. And so I said, well, Terry, how much are you trying to raise? He said, $100,000. We think will give us a lot of the materials to do this. And I said, well, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll do what we can. And, and it was real quick on Sunday. I, I let both services know, and Pastor Stephen did in Poughkeepsie as well. We posted it on Facebook at our link. I want to share with you what the Valley family has done in not even one week hurricane relief that's come in we did round it up just a little bit ten thousand dollars we wrote a check for ten thousand dollars to my friend's church that's going to help do that and rebuild uh, by the way that ohio state university gave ten thousand dollars the entire university for hurricane relief you did that valley family why would we do something like that because it's more blessed to give than to receive It's more blessed to give than to receive. And I thank you. I I can't tell you, as I was talking to him today, I said, Terry, we just put a check in the mail for $10,000. He said, what? 
just absolutely speechless. You did that badly, family, because you believe the words of Jesus. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Here's a fourth paradox, freedom through slavery. The Bible says we find freedom by being slaves. Look at what it says, Romans chapter 6, verse 18. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. The reality is every single person on the planet is a slave to something, one or two things, a slave to sin or a slave to righteous living, living the way God wants to. Every one of us, every one of us. Jesus came. It was for freedom, the Bible says, that Christ came to set us free. Free to do what? Free to do God's will. Free to live the life that God created you and me to live. And so for a Christian, when we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible makes it very clear. We can choose not to sin. We don't have to sin. Those that don't know Christ, they can't do anything other than. But we now have the ability, the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to temptation, no matter what it is, no matter what it looks like in any form or fashion. And whatever God's will is, we can say no to that temptation and we can live the righteous life as a slave to righteous living that Jesus died for us to live. It's a paradox. Freedom through slavery. Here's the fifth paradox of the major one, gaining through discarding. Gaining through discarding. Philippians chapter three, verses seven and eight. Paul puts it this way. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He's talking about all of his pedigree as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, all of this stuff, all his notoriety. He goes, this is just not valuable to me anymore. It's worthless. And he goes on and he says, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else. All my pedigree, all the, all the prestige and the pride and all that. He goes, I, I've discarded all of that. Discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. And by the way, this word here, garbage, is not garbage. <laughs> In the original language of the New Testament, if you look this up, it's not garbage, not refuse, it's poop. It's literally the word for excrement in Greek. Paul says, all my pedigree, all my degrees, all my notoriety, all that stuff, he goes, it's excrement compared that I should gain Christ. I discard everything, Paul says, and you know what? I find I have everything in Jesus Christ, gaining through discarding. The sixth paradox, living through dying. Living through dying. The Bible says that as followers of Christ, we find life by dying. Dying to ourselves, dying to our old ways, dying to sin. One example in John 12, 24 Jesus puts it this way, I tell you the truth, and in this part, he's talking about himself. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But his death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying, you know what? I'm gonna have to die. And because I die, it's gonna bring new life to many. 
It's a paradox. Doesn't make any sense, but it's the truth. Living through dying. And here's the seventh paradox, and I could just, there's probably a hundred throughout the Bible. But here's the seventh major one, as I would see it in Scripture, finding through losing. Finding through losing. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. It says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, Jesus says, you will find it. So many, we're trying to find ourselves. We hear that all the time in our culture. I'm just trying to find myself. And Jesus says, no, you need to lose yourself. And then you'll find out what real life is all about. These are the paradoxes. This is one of the reasons why I love this song. It speaks so much to me. The song won by you too. Because it's those paradoxes. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other. We're one. The paradoxes. Here's the third and last point here from this, this song, One. It talks so much about celebrating one. Celebrate. We need to celebrate that we're one. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 puts it this way. There is one body, and I had the guys highlight this. Isn't this crazy? Look at all these things that are highlighted. Over and over, we're one, we're one, we're one, we're one, we're one, we're one. Talking about Christians from all time, past, present, and future. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We're one. We're one. So powerful, this idea of one. We're one, and we need to celebrate the fact that we are one. We're one. Then it's interesting, actually right at the end of the, the song there, it says we get to carry each other, carry each other. That's part of being one, that we bear one another's burdens. Galatians chapter six, verse two, says carry each other's burdens and so you will fulfill the law of Christ. This is what our Savior, our Lord has commanded us to do, carry each other's burdens. This is what in the song he says, we get to carry each other. We're what we get to, not we have to, it's our privilege because we're one to carry each other's burdens. I had the thrill of a lifetime this summer. I got to see you two in concert at MetLife Stadium. A friend of mine, George Engel, he, he texted me one day and he's like, hey, Greg, and he's a big U2 fan. He's like, you want to go? And I was like, oh, I think so, but man, I'm paying college tuition. I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. He's like, I got you, man. I was like, you mean you got me, got me? He's like, yeah, I got you. And he bought me the ticket. It was really awesome. And uh, we went down there and I bought all the food and all that and probably paid more. But uh, anyway, <laughs> it was supposed to be the Joshua Tree tour where he was, they were going back and singing this song that was released over 10 years ago, 20 years ago, actually. Uh, Joshua Tree, which was one of the biggest uh, CDs, albums that they had. And then they went off to stage. It was just a fantastic uh, night, fantastic concert. And then they came back for an encore. And 
And they didn't play just Joshua Tree anymore. They played all their greatest hits for 90 minutes, an hour and a half. An hour and a half. And I just told George, I was like, George, George, if they play one, I'm going to jump out of my skin, man. If, if they play that song, I think I'm going to take a you know, swan dive off the top level of MetLife Stadium. And then all of a sudden, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And they played it, and, and Bono sang it. And you know how he ended the song at the end? When it's just the, the last few measures where there's no lyrics? He stood up at the microphone and he lifted his hands up to heaven. And he said, Hear us calling, Lord. Hear us call. Hear us knocking. We're knocking at your door. Hear us calling, Lord. Hear us call. Hear us knocking. We're knocking at your door. We're one. I just about came out of my skin. It was like a spiritual experience and moment right there. And if you know anything about the group, which I've read probably more than you'll ever want to know about it, three or four books about the group, incredible the faith that they have in Jesus Christ. But they were kicked out of the church when they were teenagers because they, the church told them in Ireland, we'll have none of that devil rock and roll music in here. You say love is... A, Answered, love the higher law. You ask me to enter and then you make me crawl. And I can't keep holding on to what you've got because all you've got is hurt. See, we are one, one body, one spirit, one hope. We were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God for all. The Bible makes this so clear. And so what is the, if we're one, there's got to be some level of agreement and there is, whether, whether it's Protestant or, or Catholic or, or uh, Orthodox, these, these are all three the, the different, if you will, hallways in the, in the home of Christianity. But the one thing that has always been agreed upon since the early, early years and centuries of the Christian church, one of the creeds of the church, that if we can agree on this and anyone else agrees on this creed, we're one, past, present, or future. And I put it in the Valley app for you just so you could read through it. You're probably familiar with it. Many of you probably learned it at a very young age, the Apostles' Creed. And this has been the definitive, and there have been some, some edits on it, the Nicene Creed and some of the others. But this is the definitive statement of Orthodox Christian faith. It's expressed many different ways. There's an there's a Orthodox way. There's the Roman Catholic way. And there's the Protestant way. And we're Protestants. But we're one. Because Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant all agree on this statement of faith. And I just want to read it right now. And if anyone, it doesn't matter what church they attend, anyone says, I believe that, you know what? They're your brother or sister in Christ. They're my brother and sister in Christ. We're one. We're not the same. We get to carry each other. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified and died and was buried. He descended to hell. 
The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me just point out one thing. There's a little asterisk there. And even if you grew up Catholic, you know the Apostles' Creed, that's not a capital C. It's a lowercase c. The word Catholic means universal. It's not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. It's the Roman Church. Catholic, this word means universal. That's why we put a little asterisk next to it. What it literally means is that is the true Christian church of all time and all places. One church. We're one. Just three hallways in the same house. Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant in the house of God. We're one. And so as we started this series, I was like, I've got to, I've got to talk about that song because every single person in the Valley family has been impacted at least indirectly because of what happened to me that day driving home 10 years after the release of that song God just spoke to me so strongly from those words that were written back in uh, back in 1991 and it's caused us to become who it is that we are today sometimes people ask us you know why Greg why don't you ever you know advertise on Christian radio (laughs) I said because I don't like fishing in aquariums who would do that we're we're not trying to catch fish in the the Christian aquarium let's get someone to come from another church to our church we want to reach those that are unchurched that's the driving force that's the heart behind everything that we do those that are far away from God that's who we're trying to reach and generally Christians listen to Christian radio not unchurched folks that's what we're all about here reaching people with the life giving message of Jesus Christ we're one but we're not the same that's a paradox but we get to carry each other I'm going to ask would you bow your heads with me right now let's pray Heavenly Father Lord, thank you for creativity that you give in the church and outside of the church as well. Thank you, Lord, that, that, that sometimes even a song can hit us in a way and remind us of what your word says, just like it did me back almost 16 years ago. And Father, I pray right now that, that for the whole Valley family, Lord, that we would recognize that we are one that we're in the family, your family, and anyone and everyone that that sees you and has received Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Lord, they're our brother, they're our sister in Christ. And we need to carry each other. Lord, I thank you for all those that gave to the hurricane relief, and and whether it's through Valley or, or some other organization, Lord, this is a way that we can help those that are in need. This is what you would desire for our, your people is to help those that we gain by discarding, that we receive through giving, that we live through dying, that we find through losing. Father, help us to become even more 
who it is that you desire for us to be. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Valley Christian Church located in Hopewell Junction, New York. Please visit us online at valleychristianchurch.net for more information. Thank you.